0: I'm going to ask you just to turn in your Bibles to the, the first letter of Peter. So that's 1 Peter. First Peter, and we'll read for, in chapter 1 just the first two verses. I'm going to start a series on 1 Peter, but you know I'll, I'll maybe do something. I've been yeah challenged to maybe do something different just during the, the holiday months, but we'll, we'll, we'll start this series now. And just to make sure you don't miss out on the continuity, we'll, we'll begin again at the end of the holidays. But we're going to start just now. So, first, Peter, from verse 1. And we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We thank God for his word given to us. Let's just pray. And Father, we come again and we place ourselves, our lives under the authority of your word because we know that it's through that word and by the work of the Holy Spirit that you want us to grow into the likeness of Jesus. That you want to work in our lives and fashion and form us. And Lord, we know sometimes being made into that likeness is not an easy thing. And we know that because of the the people we are, that sometimes it can be a painful thing. So, Lord, we pray, help us today to reach out to you, to give our lives afresh into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, preparing for preaching isn't quite as uh, challenging a thing for me as, as it once was, I have to be honest. First, because... I've been doing it for a while now and you've got to learn a little bit as the years go by. And second, well, you know, the absence of young children from the home does make preparation easier. I've got to say that. And as I speak about that, one particular memory here really does stand out in my mind. It was a time when I'd gone to bed wrestling with the decision about what sermon series we should start next. And I'm not great at making those kind of decisions. But then, during the night, due in the main, though not entirely, to genuine sickness or pain, every member of the family except for me was up for a fairly extended period. Now, I tried to be sympathetic to this. I really did try. But after about three hours, the reasons for us being kept awake really were beginning to get a bit silly. So let's just say, to cover it all, that my milk of human kindness began to curdle a little. And so Elaine, she then overheard me and repeated this to me, with the result being that it has stuck in my mind ever since. She heard me, overheard me saying to one of our children, you don't have to worry about monsters. The only monster you have to worry about in this house is me. So get to sleep. Now can you imagine what it was like then, the next day, trying to finally decide what to preach on and to begin to study and pray and prepare for the next series of sermons. It was not one of the most exhilarated and productive days of my life. Well, deciding what to preach on following that series we just finished on on judges has again, as it always is for me, been a bit of a struggle. But minus children and minus sleepless nights, it is an awful lot easier. And what I've decided is to balance things up a bit and move into the New Testament and look with you at this book of First Peter for a variety of different reasons, but above all, because this book teaches the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. In the main, not always, but in the main, in such a clear and relevant way. And it's, it's my hope that I'll be helped by God to communicate to you something clearly of that which has so excited me. Where we're going to begin, though, today is by focusing on setting this letter in its context. That's all we're going to do this morning to try to understand just something of the situation that these people that Peter first wrote to here were actually in. Because, because you see, we will never really understand what the Lord through Peter was trying to say to them, and then from this, what he's trying to say to us. We'll never truly, accurately understand this. Until we grasp something of the situation, of the background to the situation, that these people here found themselves in. So let's begin then by looking first of all at who it was written to. And that the physical geographic location of these churches that these Christians were living in is made clear here by the place names that Paul provides for us in verse 1. To God's elect, he says, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you see, these are the names of four Roman provinces at this time. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Pontius, Bithynia, that are in the main all part of what we now call modern Turkey. And the reason it's believed, why they here are named in the order that they are, why Pontus and Bithynia are separated here, is because this was the route taken by Peter's messenger, Silas, uh, uh, who's mentioned in 1 Peter 5.10, as he took Peter's letter from church to church. But I believe that what's far more interesting and relevant of the clues that are given in the text here as to where these churches are spiritually. So you see, again, there in verse 1, Peter talks of those he writes to as God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, etc. Now, the significance of this is that the word that here in the NIV is translated scattered is that this is actually a translation of a technical term, of the dispersion, of the scattering that was used elsewhere by the Jews and used in Jewish literature to speak of the Jewish people who were scattered, who were dispersed throughout the nations from their true homeland of Israel. So you see, what Peter does here is he takes this term and applies it to the church. And as he does this in conjunction with talking of them as strangers in the world, well, then I think it's pretty obvious what he's trying to get across. That the church, the church Christians living in the world, scattered and dispersed throughout the world, are journeying on their way to their heavenly homeland. This is our journey on the way to our true home in heaven. To our Jerusalem. And so that this now, our, our heavenly, our, our earthly home, sorry, now, our time here on earth, that this is in comparison just a passing, a flitting, a temporary phrase. Now you see, the relevance of this is that Peter was writing this letter at a time when the dark clouds of persecution were just beginning to gather over the church. There was already some, there was already a little local persecution in different places, but this was just prior to the first real widespread persecution of the church during the reign of Nero. A persecution, incidentally, during which Peter and Paul were to give their lives as martyrs. But you see, during this this time, the spiritual foundations of every believer's life were going to be tested. They were going to be severely tested. And Peter knows that because of our fleshly nature, he knows that it's always going to be our tendency under pressure to go back again to valuing first the things of this world rather than focusing on our heavenly home and so living by spiritual heavenly values. And it's also always going to be our natural tendency, natural humanity is going to drive us to measure God's care for us in this, to measure God's faithfulness towards us in terms of our circumstances, in terms of how we are doing in this life. You see, it's always our tendency to value this world as most precious. It's our tendency to see this world is really all that actually matters. And so if things don't seem to be going well for us at any point in this world, in this life, well, so then we conclude that for some reason, God has turned his back on us. That we don't really matter. That God doesn't really care for us in the way that we thought, in the way that he seems to care for others. You see, what Peter Wants to make clear to us here is that this is just not so. Rather, that the real value of what happens to us, the real value of what we experience in this life, lies not in does this make me happy, does this make me feel cozy and, and comfortable, but rather its real value lies in does this prepare me for the life to come. Does this make me better equipped for heaven and for seeing God face to face? Now you see Peter here, he knows the kind of hardship in this world that the people that he writes to here are soon going to be going through. And he knows that unless they get things right here and unless they see and filter what's happening to them through this kind of spiritual perspective that we've just outlined, he knows that this is going to overwhelm them. And so he, he writes to them to remind them again, to underline to them that this is the way that they have to view things if they are going to survive and even more if they are going to thrive living in a sinful world that's antagonistic to God. So he reminds them, verse 1, that they are God's elect, God's chosen strangers in the world. I hope you can see that if nothing else in this first letter of Peter were to be relevant to us, then that this certainly is. Because, see, I believe that one of the big problems in the church of today, and probably the church throughout history, is that too many Christians do view life from a worldly point of view. We've all got to fight against that. That is that in everything we experience, in everything that life brings our way, all of this, we tend to to value and filter through in our thinking, in terms of, does this make me happy? Does this make me comfortable? You see... Too often, we seem to be trying to build for ourselves a kind of heaven on earth. And we think that it's God's job to help us in doing this. And so then when things don't make us happy, when we're not comfortable, when life's not working out the way that we would like life to work out, when we're maybe going through tough testing times, well, too many Christians during this kind of experience at best They manage to hold on to their faith by their fingertips. Because they do feel that God, by allowing them to to go through this, that God's let them down. And there are times when Christians even begin to doubt the very existence of a God who could let his children go through this. We would go along to church, keep up a front, but inside, that doubt's there. But what these Christians often don't seem able to even begin to contemplate is that these experiences might be something that God could use. They seem closed off to the thought that God in his sovereign power, his almighty power, might be able, might want to take and to use what they're going through to spiritually mature them and so to better prepare them for heaven. And so because Christians are closed off to this, because they are viewing things from a fleshly rather than a heavenly-oriented perspective, so because of this, they stumble through life from crisis to crisis. And experiences in life that God could and God would use to build them up and to make them better fitted for heaven instead become life-crippling experiences but let's move on now from looking at who this was written to that is these Christians on the brink of persecution of the most severe testing of their faith let's move on from this to look at what this was actually written for the purpose then that Peter had in mind I believe as he penned this letter and let me just begin here by saying that in recent years the tradition has largely been to see first Peter Basically, as baptismal teaching. That this was kind of the the early church's baptismal class. And and that's because of the number of allusions there are to to new Christians in this letter. And also because of the the sheer breadth and the the variety of the, the subjects that are covered here. However, I don't see this letter in that way. I can see why it's been seen in this way, but I don't see it like this. Rather, I see its purpose as being very closely connected to what we've just been been looking at. That is Peter's writing here, to a church standing on the verge of persecution. And so he wants to to encourage them to see things from that spiritual perspective, and he wants to encourage them in the midst of this to stand So the reason then why he has such an emphasis on young Christians is because he knows that it's their new fledgling faith that in all likelihood is most susceptible to attack. (laughs) And the reason why he covers such a a variety of subjects, doctrinal, practical, etc., is because he knows that the church is likely to face attack on all fronts. And the church has to be prepared for that. They have to know what they believe and they have to know how they should behave. But you see, when you understand Peter's purpose in this way, that he's writing to give encouragement to Christians who he knows stands on the verge of a far severer experience of persecution than they've ever known before. Well, then, it really does then help you to pick out from the, the massive material that we find in First Peter, it helps you to pick out the themes that again and again Peter's trying to get across, particularly to new Christians that he's seeking to underline to them. And that is, as far as the Christian is concerned, the need for faith, obedience, and patience if they're to stand in the time of, of testing faith to establish them and to hold them in believing obedience to direct them in their living and patience to comfort them in their suffering and as far as our God is concerned well there are two things that this church facing suffering again and again are reminded of in this letter that is of the glory and of the grace of God. That in their suffering, they are to live for God's glory. And that as they suffer, they are constantly surrounded by the grace, upheld by the grace, that wonderful, undeserved love of God. Now, you can trace these themes, I think, throughout this letter, but they're really all brought together for us in chapter 5, verse 10, where there Peter says, And the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. But you know, I found in, in Warren Wearsby's little commentary on this book, I found a salutary warning that this will not work its way out in our lives in the way that it should. It won't happen unless we see things from that right spiritual perspective and then respond because of that in the way we should. For this is what Warren Wearsby says. He says, Suffering does not automatically bring glory to God and blessing to God's people. Some believers have fainted and fallen in times of trial and have brought shame to the name of Christ. It is only when we trust and depend on the grace of God that we can then glorify God in the time of suffering. Okay, we've looked at who this was written to, what this was written for. Let's finish this morning by looking at who can bring this about. Who it is that by his grace can enable us in our suffering to live for his glory. And it is, of course, it is, as we know, our mighty God. With what's made clear here in verse 2, with each person of the Trinity having a part to play in this. Each person, for this letter we're told here, is written to God's elect to strangers in the world who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. But how does this this work? How does all this fit in? Do you see it? In in this way I believe. In that the foreknowledge of God the Father. That reminds us that while God does not ordain in the sense of deliberately will all the tragedies and the trials that are perhaps part of our life, that are part and parcel of living in a fallen, sinful world, as fallen, sinful, weak human beings. Yet. God does know exactly what is to come our way. God is not taken by surprise. And in his love, by his mighty sovereign power, he is able to take these things, take all these experiences, take us, take who we are, and he is able to use them that Christ's glory might be seen in us, that something of heaven's life might be reflected out from our lives he's able to do that but again that will only happen if we are ready to trust god if we're ready to turn to god if we're ready to depend on him and to draw on him and his resources in his grace and i know that's not always easy it's certainly not easy for me But it is what has to happen before the God who knows, who foreknows our circumstances, is able to work in our circumstances in the kind of mighty and glorious way that he so desires to. The next we're told, this happens through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to say that the NIV translation here isn't actually the best it isn't because in some way they needed here to get the word in in you see that's what what peter is trying i think to get across that the whole of our life that the whole of our existence is lived in the realm of the sanctified holy spirit that he is at work He is there in every circumstance, in every experience, in every sorrow, in every hardship we go through. He's there seeking to use those things to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. And all this, in all this, the Father who knows all, all that we are to go through, the Spirit who is at work in all, in each and every, every experience of life, all this is geared towards the one end for obedience to Jesus Christ. That is that we might grow in our circumstances in our obedience to Christ. Hard though though they may be, and I know people here are going through more difficult things than I ever have, because it's as we do that though that truly the life and the glory of Jesus will be seen in us. Do you notice the other connected phrase that's used here? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I want to say to you, these are not just poetic, kind of colorful words that are being used by Peter here to kind of liven up, brighten up what he's saying. Actually, these are very, very important words. For the costly blood of sacrifice the blood that was shed as the penalty for sin was sometimes sprinkled in the Old Testament as a symbol of cleansing. It was a symbol, a sign that you'd been cleansed. For example, Leviticus 14:6 and 7 talks of this in, in regard to cleansing from leprosy and from other skin diseases. And you see, it's this that, that David takes up then in Psalm 51, in those famous words. When having spoken eloquently of his sin there, he then says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. For you see, the, the hyssop plant, this was the plant that was used to dip in and then to sprinkle with blood. Now, it us all this sounds a bit gory, but the basic point is That this was a reminder given of the cost required to deal with sin. That there had to be sacrifice for sin to be dealt with. With the sprinkling then being a reminder that once this sacrifice has been made, cleansing then takes place. And we need to know, and that's the symbol, we need to know that we are clean in God's sight. Now, the relevance of this, I believe, here in 1 Peter. What Peter is actually saying to us is that even when we seek to see life from that right spiritual perspective, even when we seek to find God's will in our suffering, to be open to the Spirit in our suffering, to glorify Christ in our suffering, even when we try that with all our heart to do that, even then, because we are human, sometimes we will fail. Sometimes we'll fall down. What Peter's saying is that when that happens, we need not lose heart because the blood of Jesus Christ, as we're seeking to live to glorify God, not living undisciplined lives, but as we're seeking to, to live for Christ, that blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That day by day, moment by moment, as these things happen, we can and we should bring our failings to God. Knowing that through Christ, by virtue of his sacrifice, all our sins, all our failures, all are dealt with. And so then, as we live in this kind of way, giving our all for God's glory, while all the time trusting in what Christ has done for us, well then what is open to us is the most wonderful experience of ongoing fellowship with God. Because notice what it says finally here in verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. See, that's what our experience will be as we seek to live in this kind of life of fellowship with God. We will know the grace of God. We will know his love at work in our lives and the peace of God. That deep sense of peace deep within that only God can bring, that will be in our heart in the most glorious way imaginable. See what it says? Grace and peace in abundance. And this can all be ours. Right now, today. If only we're ready to begin to look at life from that spiritual perspective. But this life isn't what really matters. What matters is the life this is preparing for us, the life to come. If only we're ready to trust in the God, the God who knows all that we're going through, but the God who's also at work in each and every situation. If only we're ready to seek to live for Christ's glory, to seek to be obedient to him in all things in life, then we're told the grace and peace of God is there for us in abundance. That's what God wants for each one of his people, grace and peace in abundance. If only we're ready to reach out and by faith take hold of that. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that just as those people when peter first wrote that letter we're in testing times in their lives lord we thank you that though our tests might be less or might be greater that you're there for us in exactly the same way that as we seek you as we turn to you you are there and you are ready and you are eager to be found you want to make us more like jesus You want to hold us, you want to be with us, you want to strengthen us. You want us to experience your love and you want us to come to that place of grace and peace in Jesus Christ. Lord, reach out to each one of your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.